0: But we're in Genesis chapter, chapters 8 and 9 today. And as you've seen, as we've been going through the individual chapters and events of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the focus has obviously been on seeing the gospel in those events. We're reminded in the New Testament that everything written in the Old Testament was to serve as a tutor to lead us to Christ, we're told. Which means that we should be able to find Christ in the Old Testament, and I did a series quite a few years ago on the number of times that Jesus actually appears in the Book of Genesis, where he shows up in a theophany or a christophany, he shows up in physical form, and so we know that that 's true, but there are also allusions to or um, foreshadowings of the Gospel and Jesus Christ in first 11 chapters of Genesis we talked about this when we first began that there are over 60 allusions or quotations referring to the first 11 chapters of Genesis in the New Testament and as we think about this we've taken these things literally and historically because when you don't see them that way then it's difficult to understand how they might serve as a type or a foreshadowing of the gospel. In fact, I was reading stuff this week on the pressure um, to not take these things literally. And we see that more and more in the church. And so we've taken these things absolutely literally. We believe these are literal events. We do believe that the flood was a literal universal flood that wiped out all of mankind except for Noah and his family. We believe the details of the text just as we see them. And there are many who no longer believe that within the Christian church. They see it all as symbolic, or maybe it was just sort of a small little local flood, and Noah had a tiny little kayak, for all we know. But we don't take it that way. We take these things as literal events, and that is where they find their importance and their symbolism of what we see in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at that today. Where do we see... The gospel today in this. And each one of these, whether we've stressed it or not, we've had a title for each one of these messages, something we don't always do. So we'll do, you know, we have one, the, or the um, gospel in Genesis 1 and 2, and the gospel in creation, the gospel at the fall, the gospel in conflict, which was the story of Cain and Abel, the gospel in the flood, the gospel in the, the antediluvian world, meaning what happened before that. And this one is the gospel in the rainbow. Because I think out of all of these that we've looked at, what we're going to look at today is probably the starkest foreshadowing, if you will, of the gospel as we look at at this this morning. So let's go ahead and start with the first 19 verses of chapter 8. I'm going to read those for you. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 19. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky was restrained and the water receded steadily from the earth and at the end of 150 days the water decreased in the 7th month on the 17th day of the month the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat the water decreased steadily until the 10th month and the 10th month on the first day of the month the tops of the mountains became visible then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made and he sent out a raven and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth then he sent out a dove for him, or from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. And the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, her beak was, or in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf, so no one knew... That the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited another seven days, and he sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the six hundred and first year, in the sixth month, or the fifth, mo- or I'm sorry, the first month, and the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the twentieth day of the, se- of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. The first thing that I see in this passage and the thing that stands out to me is something that's said in the very beginning. Notice it says, but God remembered Noah. God remem- remembered Noah and all the beasts and the cattle that were with him in the ark. When the Bible speaks of God remembering someone or something, it doesn't mean that he's forgetful. It's not like God went, oh, hmm, <laughs> forgot about Noah down there in the boat. What am I going to do now? It doesn't mean that God somehow forgot We know that God is omniscient, he's all-knowing, he knows all things. It's impossible for him to forget something in a cognitive sense. Now elsewhere, the Bible talks about him not remembering sins. We'll get to that in a moment here. But it doesn't mean here that God somehow forgot about Noah and all of a sudden as he's looking down there said, Oh, what's the little dot I see down there? Rather, when the Bible speaks of God remembering someone, it has more to do with his actions than his cognitive ability. I want to give you some examples. Sometimes it involves God rescuing someone from a situation or a personal plight. Turn to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19. Jump down to verse 27. Genesis 19 verse 27 it says, Now Abraham arose early in the morning and he went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. This was after God had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham. And he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. The remembering by God here of Abraham has to do with the fact that he... Rescued Lot before he destroyed the city. And he did that because of his relationship with Abraham. And so, the, so God's actions are tied here to his remembrance of Abraham. If you jump down to Genesis chapter 30, verse 22, Genesis, Genesis chapter 30, verse 22, remember Abraham's wife, or I'm sorry, Jacob's wife Rachel here wasn't able to have children and we find this then God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and he opened her womb so she conceived and bore a son and said God has taken away my reproach she named him Joseph saying may the Lord give me another son and so God remembering Rachel meant that he acted on her behalf his grace was extended to her and she was Not just Abel, but God caused her to have another son. So God remembering Rachel wasn't simply that he, Oh, look, I forgot about her. But rather, he was now acting out of his grace for her benefit. What about Israel? Turn to Exodus chapter 2. You see something similar. Israel had been in captivity after Joseph had died. And years later, when the king who knew, or the pharaoh who knew Joseph died... Israel had been enslaved, they were suffering. and then we read this, Exodus chapter 2 verse 23. Now it came about when the course in the course of those days that the king of Egypt died, then the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry for help, because of their bondage rose up to God. and what does it say here? So God, Heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. And what we see next is God calls Moses then to go rescue God's people from Egypt. So God remembering Israel, again, wasn't just that, oh, they came to mind, but God took notice of their suffering and now initiated a plan to deliver them from their suffering. From Egypt, take them into the promised land. All in fulfillment of His promise is made to Abraham. And so God remembering is oftentimes God acting on behalf of people to rescue or to deliver or to save them from personal peril or difficult circumstances and situations that's why it was often used as a plead for God in the Old Testament as well turn to Judges chapter 16 you remember the story of Samson it's in some respects a bittersweet story good times and bad times and Sometimes Samson was a good example and sometimes not such a good example. And at the end of his life, as he's been taken captive, we hear this from Solomon. Chapter 16, verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and he said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time. O God, that I may once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes, you remember that Samson's eyes had been gouged out. He's now in captivity. That got him chained between two pillars. And so at that time of difficulty, he calls out to God for God's help. And he says, remember me. And so Samson said, or I'm sorry, Samson verse 29, grasped the two middle pillars of the, of the house in which they rested and braced himself against them with one hand. With his right hand and the other with his left, and Samson said, "Let me die with the Philistines." And he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the Lords and all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. God remembered Samson, delivered him, at, well, maybe not from death, but gave him strength and avenged him against his enemies. Look at first Samuel 1. You remember Hannah? Samuel's mother. She wasn't a mother at this point. She was struggling. She was being tormented by her husband's other wife. First Samuel chapter 1, what does Hannah do? She calls out to the Lord. She was greatly distressed, it says in verse 10. And so she prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. She made a vow and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant, what? And remember me. Remember me and not forget your maidservant but will give your maidservant a son then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head and so you jump down into verse 19 and you see that the Lord did remember her actually then they arose early in the morning and worshipped the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah and Elkanah had relations with Hannah his wife and the Lord what? remembered her acted on her behalf and Samuel was born how about Hezekiah? 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20. Hezekiah is sick, close to death. What does he pray? Verse 20 or verse 2 of chapter 20. Then he turned his face to the wall and he prayed to the Lord saying, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you. How I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. If you remember the story, the Lord returned him to health. But again, we see this over and over in the Old Testament where they would call upon God and instead of just saying, Help me, they would say, Remember me! Which again is more than just, Oh, yeah, I almost forgot who you were. It's this idea of God acting in His grace and His mercy upon someone. Psalm chapter 27 verse 5 says, Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your loving kindness. Remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. What we see as we look at that psalm, it's an interesting one because it kind of plays this idea of remembering off itself. Because it says, don't remember my transgressions, but remember me. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 25 says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah, or sorry, Jeremiah chapter 14 says, Thus says the Lord to his people, Even so, they have loved to wander. They have not kept their feet in check. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and call their sins to account. And so you find this interesting tension between when God remembers and when God doesn't. Sometimes he'll remember iniquity, which means... He punishes it. It doesn't mean, again, that he's just cognitively, oh, that's right, these are some sinful people. No, it means that he acts on behalf of that and he judges their sin. So again, this idea of remembering is an action word, not so much a cognitive one. And we actually see that, if you go back to Genesis chapter 8 and 9 here, This is no insignificant word or phrase. God remembered Noah. What did God do at this point? Well, he had put Noah, his family, his sons and their wives and all the animals on the ark to save them from the flood. And now that the flood is done, what does he do? He finishes that work by sending wind and he dries up the land. He actually closes the fountains of the deep, it says. He closed the floodgates of the heavens. It says that he restrained the rain. It says that he caused the ark to settle on the mountains of Ararat. And... He dries up the land. He even instructed Noah then, Noah, it's time for you to get off the ark. So God remembered Noah. He acted on behalf of Noah. He didn't just leave him there on the ark. If you think about it for a moment, this is in essence a form of salvation, is it not? In some respects, and I'm going to be somewhat allegorical here, it's almost similar to the completion of our salvation. It began, in this case, with Noah being saved by the ark. But that's not where it ended. God continued to remember him and then set him on a new path of life by having him come out of the ark. Very similar to our promise of resurrection in many respects. I suspect there's an illusion there found in that. So from a grammatical standpoint, God remembered introduces not just what we find here, but everything else now that is going to take place because now the Lord is going to enter into a new relationship with Noah, with mankind, and with his creation. That is what it means for God to now remember he is going to act on behalf of the very creation that he just nearly wiped out and develop a brand new relationship with them. He could have just destroyed everything and then walked away. You know what? It's not worth it. But he chose not to. Instead, he chose to remember. We're going to see an allusion to that in a bit when it comes to our own salvation in Christ. So, after the flood, God entered into this new covenant relationship with all of the inhabitants of the earth. Without getting into too much detail, let's talk about what a biblical covenant is. A biblical covenant is not simply a contract. You know, I I deal with contracts all the time in my work. I hire somebody to do a job. So I get an estimate from them. I sign it. And they're expected to do the work. And if they don't do the work, I can say the contract here says, and I hold them to account for that. That's a contract. But covenants are not simply contracts. They're focused not on the services. A contract is focused on the services part of that, typically. You know, I pay you, to do these services that's the central focus of that contract but when it comes to covenants they're not about what people can do as much as the relationship between the two individuals and that's what sort of sets biblical covenants apart from earthly contracts is that the central focus of a covenant is the relationship between the two parties does that make sense? You know, it's, it's kind of like... Um, I, I mean, I, I kind of know the people that do my wiring at work. But I really have a relationship with them, if you will. It's really about all the service they can provide for me. I call them when I need them to come wire some stuff. I don't hang out with them. Outside of that, I don't really have a relationship with them. It's a, it's a contract. So my time with them is really based primarily on the services they can provide for me. Okay? But when it comes to a covenant, it's really about trying to build a relationship with somebody. And that's exactly what we see with every single one of the covenants in the Old Testament. In fact, that's really, when you think about it, the whole point of the marriage relationship. The reason a marriage is called a covenant relationship is because it is. It's truly about that. Hopefully, when you married your spouse, it wasn't because she can do A, B, or C for me, and I can do A, B, and C for her, and it's all about the services that we can render to one another. No, it's about the relationship, is it not? And so, what we find here is that as God remembers Noah, He enters into this new covenant relationship. And when you look at biblical covenants, there are primarily three parts. You get some discussion and some debate: are there three parts, or four parts, or the you know three point seven five parts, or whatever? But there's at least three parts to a biblical covenant. One is they they typically start with a sacrifice of some kind, typically. Then there are promises and expectations as a part of that covenant. So promises and expectations. And then lastly, there's typically a sign to signify that covenant. We're going to see all three of those here with this Noahic covenant, if you will. And that's what it's called, the Noahic covenant. Let's look at verses 8 through 20. You're going to notice that the first part of a biblical covenant is typically a sacrifice and we see that with this covenant that God establishes with Noah look at what happens in verse 20-22 through chapter 8 then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself I will never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night, shall not cease. Noah and his family have been on the ark here for, most estimates are about a year. Some say just under a year. Some say just over a year. Some say exactly 370 days and are dogmatic about it. But somewhere, approximately a year, Noah and his family have been on this giant boat. And the first thing that Noah does when his feet hit dry land is what? Makes an offering. He begins to worship God. Now, this would have been a fairly sizable offering because it had to do with every one of the clean animals and birds. Now, if you do your math and you kind of look at what the Old Testament says in terms of clean and unclean animals, it means that there are 15 different kinds of clean animals and there are 18 different kinds of clean birds. So that would, you know, you do the math on that, 23 possibly different types of animals and birds here. And so it's a fairly sizable offering that he makes here. But you notice something else about this, is God is actually the one that provided the sacrifices. Noah's the one performing them, but where did those animals come from? You remember, when we always tell the story, two by two, they went into the ark, right? That's a lie. (laughs) I mean that facetiously. But it's not completely true. Because God told Noah to take two of every what kind of animals? remember? unclean animals how many clean animals was Noah supposed to take? seven now, why might that be? in part some would argue because they could eat them but the law hadn't come yet so they wouldn't have, you know plus they weren't supposed to be eating animals before the flood so Noah wouldn't have thought in his head gee, he wants me to take seven clean animals that's so I can eat them Because he wasn't told he could eat the animals until after the flood. Noah would have understood the clean animals were were for sacrifices. And so what God himself did was he told Noah before the flood, before getting on the ark, take seven of every clean. Why? Because God was preparing to have Noah make the offerings. And so God himself provided the animals for the sacrifice. He made the plans beforehand. Gee, does that sound familiar as we think about the foreshadowings of the gospel? Who provides the sacrifice ultimately for our salvation? God made plans. What did we talk about all the way back in our first discussion, Genesis chapter 1? When did God decide that he would send his son to die on our behalf? Was it somehow after sin God said, Oh, I've got to come up with a plan now. No, we're told that everything about God's eternal, redemptive plan was something God thought of before he even uttered the first words in Genesis 1 to create creation. God had already planned. God had already prepared. And we see that here. So Noah comes off the ark. And he makes an offering. And you notice there's something else important about this is the type of offering that Noah makes. You notice that it was a whole burnt offering. Now this is significant because in the Old Testament, by the time you get to the law, these whole burnt offerings, it involved the whole entire, everything except the carcass. The primary purpose of a whole burnt offering was to make atonement for sin and restore the relationship between God and man. So it's significant that when Noah comes off the ark here, he makes a burnt offering because I believe we are to see it as an atonement for sin. In many respects, this makes Noah a type of Christ because I believe that what we see here is when Noah comes off that ark, he makes this atoning sacrifice, if you will. God had just wiped out the world from sin. What better way to establish a new relationship between God and mankind, than a priest from an Old Testament perspective making a sacrifice on behalf of the sin and bringing about restoration between God and man. And so, I believe that this sacrifice wasn't so much—you know—we're told Noah was a righteous man, but even right, but even Noah would have sinned. It wasn't saying he was perfect and never sinned, but that he was righteous. He he walked with God, but Noah made this offering. Which, again, from an Old Testament law perspective, would have represented an atoning sacrifice. I believe Noah's sacrifice here was, in some respects, an atonement for mankind's sin that had been committed, God had already had to judge, but now established a new relationship. Because the whole point of that atoning sacrifice was to restore the relationship between God and man. And what better way to start that after the flood than with a sacrifice? You notice that it says that this was a soothing aroma. Verse 21, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. This phrase, soothing aroma, is used 43 times in the Old Testament. And it's always in relationship to the burnt offering before the Lord. Some translations include a note here suggesting that there's an alternate translation for it, a resting aroma. And that's because the word for soothing here appears to be referring to a quieting or a soothing or a tranquilizing effect. That as it is taken in by the Lord's nostrils, if you will, that there's this soothing, this tranquilizing effect where he's now satisfied. You know, my wife loves to do the whole doTERRA misting oil things in the air at home. Some of them are very pleasing. Some of them not so much. Some of them burn my nostrils. But there are some that I think I walked in the bathroom the other night and what was the one you were burning in the, in the upstairs where I said, something really smells good. She's like, oh, that's doTERRA. You know? And I went, darn, I shouldn't have said anything. you know. But that does appear to be the idea here that this aroma in some, refi- in some ways is a, has a quieting or a soothing effect. In other words, it puts at rest God's wrath it satisfies him in fact it's weird the, the word play here because Noah's name actually refers to rest so you have all this interesting word plays going on here Martin Luther rendered this phrase the odor of rest suggesting that at the time of sacrifices God rested from his wrath and I think we could probably make a, a valid argument that this idea of this soothing aroma is just that that it was a, a resting aroma it was something that you know, caused God to rest in his wrath, and He was now satisfied with it. That's certainly true in the case of Jesus Christ, is it not? God was satisfied by the death of Jesus Christ, and it put his rest, or put His wrath at rest. We don't face God's wrath because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for us, and it satisfied the Father. However, He will pour out his wrath on those who have rejected Christ. Why? Because it hasn't satisfied his wrath for them because they haven't accepted it it's fitting here as we are at the tail end of God's wrath he just wiped out all of creation and so we see these amazing word pictures here being satisfied by the sacrifice that Noah made and again I would argue that this isn't just a sacrifice on behalf of Noah but he's serving here as a priest if you will, a type of priest by offering a sacrifice a fairly large sacrifice on behalf of all of mankind Again, symbolically foreshadowing what Christ would ultimately do on the cross. So when God smelled the aroma of Noah's sacrifice, it says that he determined he would never again destroy the earth and wipe out all living things. It's interesting because, notice it says, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, this is not yet a promise that he's making to Noah. This is something God is saying to himself. And notice what he says, I will never again curse the ground. On account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from its youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now, the reference that we see here is not that God will never judge the earth. We know that he does. We know a time is coming. It's foreshadowed. It's prophesied. It's described in great detail in the book of Revelation. God will ultimately judge the earth. He will destroy the earth and recreate the earth. Many, many, many will face his wrath and be destroyed. What he's referring to here is he says that he would never do it again on account of man's heart. He says a little bit later that he won't do it through a flood. In other words, what God is really saying here is until my final wrath that will be poured out at the end of time, I will not do this again. In other words, he's not going to repeat this process where every time mankind gets out of control, he's going to wipe them out and start all over. He's done that with Noah, but he will never do that again. There will never be an intermediate, worldwide, total annihilation of God's creation. He will wait until it's time to pour out his final wrath. And so he determines this in his heart. Now, he's going to repeat this as a command a little bit later to Noah. But at this point, it's interesting. He's saying this to himself. He's determining in and of himself, I will not do this again. It's interesting, too, here, um, why God actually does that. Verse 22. While earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. What God basically says here is that For the most part, things will continue as God has now designed until that final act of judgment. Do you notice the reason why God says to himself here that he wouldn't do this again? Why things would continue on? This is really interesting. He says the reason why he determined this in his heart was because the intent of man's heart is evil from its youth. That's rather interesting because that was the reason why God actually judged them. So, you get this interesting play here that the reason God judged them in the flood, the reason why God says, This is the only option I have, is to wipe them out and to start over, is because every intent of their heart is pure wickedness. That's all they do. That's all they think. That's the only thing in their heart. So, that became the reason for the judgment. Now, it's the reason why He will not judge them again in the same form or fashion. Isn't that rather interesting? there's this tension there because God says I had to judge them because of the wickedness of their heart now I'm not going to because every intent of their heart is wicked I don't know necessarily what to do with that in terms of a practical application for us except that Have you ever found yourself in a situation, maybe it was with your kids, or maybe it's with a coworker or somebody, where you keep trying to correct wrong, and they just don't get it. They just refuse in that particular area, and you finally just sort of resolve yourself to say, you know what? Okay, I'm I'm not going to continue to deal with that in the same way. That's just something I'm going to have to kind of accept. It's in many respects as if God has done that. He's said because mankind has a wicked heart and will continue on this path I'm going to withhold my wrath and my judgment because of that now again it's hard to get our heads around that completely because God is the God who has to judge and he ultimately will but we're going to see a reflection on that as it comes to the gospel too what the Bible tells us the New Testament tells us is that in fact you can turn here on your own but Acts chapter 17 verse 30 and Romans chapter 3 verse 25 says that God overlooked temporarily the sins of the past. And it reflects back upon this. And so what God really is saying here is that I am going to, in my divine forbearance, put up with their sin from the flood till the end of time when I will issue my final wrath, my final judgment that I'm going to exercise by divine forbearance and patience because I love mankind because I don't want any to perish even Peter himself says that the reason Jesus Christ hasn't come back yet is because when Jesus Christ comes back God's wrath begins the day of the Lord begins the church is taken out of the way God pours out his wrath begins to judge the earth and because of that Peter tells us, God doesn't want any to perish, so he is patient. He is long-suffering because he doesn't want people to perish. So he exercises divine patience and forbearance. And so God, as he looks down at Noah, and he remembers Noah, and he sees Noah come out of the ark, and Noah makes this soothing sacrifices sacrifice, and God is looking at Noah, and he says, I, I will not do this again. I'm going to exercise forbearance because this human race is bent on wickedness and in my divine forbearance I will, I will be patient that's incredible and so again you get this interesting wordplay that's why he had to judge but at the same token that's why he is patient and forbearing with us and again we see that in the normalcy that he says in verse 22 that he would allow things to continue as their normal pattern and not judge the earth again in the manner that he did here. So we see in this first part, we see the sacrifice, we see the initiation of this covenant relationship with him, which again is part of all biblical covenants. The second part of this covenant that we see here is the promises and expectations. Verses 9 through 11. Let's look at the first seven verses or so. Chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky and with everything that creeps on the ground. And all fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give it to you as I gave the green plant. Only you should not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will give you life blood. or surely, I'm sorry. Surely I will require your life blood from every beast. I will also require it. And from every man and from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you. All that comes out of the ark and every beast of the earth so let's start with what God expected of Noah we see here that God repeated his command to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth that's what God expected of mankind fill the earth now be multiplied be fruitful it's a hearkening back to that original command that we see in Genesis 1.26 now instead of just repeating those final two commands of subdue and rule over the earth God states that the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the field now the simple answer why is because they can now eat you. You know? Prior to the flood, we weren't supposed to eat animals. We were supposed to kill the animals. Except maybe for sacrificial reasons, but now all of living kind should learn to fear mankind because we can now eat them. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food from you, he says. But there's a prohibition in that they can't eat the lifeblood. They can't eat the blood that's in the animals because it represents the life. And we even see that repeated in the law. The second prohibition was against taking human life. Now, that's not a new one. They weren't supposed to take human life, obviously, before the flood. But this is a repetition. But it adds a new dimension to it. Because now, anybody who takes the life of a man is supposed to be put to death themselves. Even animals who take human life, because human life is made in the image of God, is to be put to death. We practice that today, don't we? When a, You see, you hear these stories of, I'll just say it, pit bulls or other things that families own and a child is attacked by the family pet and what do they do with that dog? They euthanize it. They put it down because now that it's tasted human blood, they may do it again is what they claim but the reality of it is we still practice this today. We euthanize animals when they take human life there's a distinction between human life and animal life we can take the lives of animals we can eat them but we cannot take human life and when we do and when animals do they're to be put to death why? it says because they are made in the image of God that's why we do it you know I've never been a proponent of the death penalty as a deterrent it really isn't a deterrent people still kill people even when they go to prison they get put on death row and they can be on there for 20 years it's not a deterrent The death penalty was established by God because we are putting to death something created in the image of God. Plain and simple. It's as easy as that. It's the penalty. It's not a deterrent. It's a penalty for violating God's command. Now let's move to what God expected. From Noah's perspective, God expected him to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, but also within certain prohibitions, but also to exercise authority over the animal kingdom and even to exercise authority over humankind by having certain laws. And, And the law about the death penalty here foreshadows what's about to come in the law and everything else later, where we are expected not just to multiply and rule over the earth, but we are to subdue it, we are to rule over it, we are to exercise authority over it, and that includes laws and other things regulating mankind. So what can we expect of God? What are God's promises? Look at verses 8 through 11. God spoke to Noah and his son, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And he goes on to say, With every of the, everything that lives on the earth. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. So what are God's promises here to mankind? I will not wipe you out again. I won't do this again. I will be patient. I will be forbearing. I will exercise mercy and common grace even in the midst of your sin. Again, hard to get our head around. But that's God's promise that He won't do that again. Now again, that does not negate the fact that ultimately God continues throughout the Old Testament and the New to say there will be a time, however, where my divine forbearance, my patience with sin will run out and I will judge once again. But until that time, God's promise is, I won't do this again. I will exercise divine forbearance for your sin. Why? Because you are continually wicked and evil in your heart. So again, it doesn't eliminate the possibility of future judgment. But in some respects, it's a stay of execution, is it not? It's an exercise of divine forbearance. So we have the sign, or I'm sorry, the um, initiation of the covenant with a sacrifice. We have the promises and expectations. But then we also have the third and final part of biblical covenants, which is the sign, and we see that in verses 12 through 17. Then God said, This is a sign of this covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud upon the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature and all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature and all the flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now again, you see that word remember come through? doesn't mean God's going to go, oh yeah, there's the rainbow again. I kind of remember, didn't I work out a deal with Noah on the earth? No, it means God acts on behalf of that covenant, which means that God, when he sees the bow himself, will act on behalf of his covenant, which means he will not exercise his wrath on what he sees on the earth. And folks, think about it today as you look around. Does this world deserve to be judged by God? Does this world de- deserve for God to wipe us out like he did again in the flood? Have we not learned our lesson? And yet, when he looks at the bow in the clouds, he says, I will not do that because I have a covenant with these people. And He, so when he remembers his covenant, means he's acting in accordance with that covenant every time He sees that rainbow. It isn't just for us. It's that when God sees it, He continues to act in accordance to that covenant and does not exercise His wrath, but instead exercises His divine patience and forbearance with us. I I, I get a huge kick out of this. Dustin talked about the providence here of Katie choosing that psalm that she did mentioning the dove today and... God does that sometimes. Some of you, maybe not all of you, have been down to the ark, the ark uh, encounter, been there multiple times. But I am constantly amazed and encouraged every time they get these storms down there, they get these amazing rainbows. I mean, you there are some shockingly amazing pictures. It's up kind of on a hill, And there's this valley, and they get so much humidity and and moisture and stuff down there that when you get these storms so often, you see these amazing rainbows that completely go across the span of the ark. Do you think God had something to do with that, folks? I I do. I think he did. I think he was just like, we'll put the ark right there, because we're going to get some great pictures. So go ahead and do it, Ken. We're going to get some great shots, you know? I love it. So the rainbow serves as the sign of this covenant. All right, so where do we go from here? Let's wrap this up. Just as we've seen in the previous 10 chapters of Genesis, we see glimpses and foreshadowing of the gospel here in the Noahic covenant as well. I want to look at some of the similarities between this Noahic covenant and the new covenant. The first thing, the obvious one, is that both of them are covenants. You know what I'm talking about, the new covenant. I'm talking about the covenant of the gospel. The new covenant that was established by Jesus Christ's blood on the cross on our behalf. When we become Christians, when we commit our lives to Jesus Christ, we are told that we enter into a new covenant with God and with Christ. And so right off the bat, one of the similarities is that these are both biblical covenants. They were both initiated by God if you remember, God initiated. It wasn't that Noah went, you know, God, I got rumors here that a flood is going to come. Maybe I should do something about it. Maybe a boat, if you could help me out. No, God is the one who said, no, this is what I'm going to do. Build a boat. Here's the exact dimensions. This is exactly what I want you to do. He even closed the door to seal Noah up in the ark. It was initiated by God in the same way The new covenant was initiated by God. God initiated the redemptive plan. God is the one that sent Jesus Christ. And so both were initiated by God. They were both inaugurated with a sacrifice. Noah's sacrifice coming off the ark, what do we find in Christ? The new covenant was initiated by the sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus Christ. They both contain expectations and promises. There's an expectation that we commit our lives to Christ, that we accept Jesus Christ By faith. That we live in obedience. This idea of easy believism, that you just say this prayer and you go about your life in a normal sinful fashion, just doesn't cut it. It is a free gift, but there's an expectation that we will now walk in a manner, as Paul says in Ephesians, that is worthy of our calling. There's an expectation on our part, but there's also God's promise. The promise of eternal life. The promise of resurrection. The promise of hope finally they were both sealed with a sign were they not? we have the sign of the rainbow with the Noahic covenant but then we have the Holy Spirit we're told who is our sign we are sealed with him his life within us is the demonstration the sign that we are indeed children of God and part of the new covenant and so right off the bat we see the similarities that's the first thing I think we need to see the second another obvious similarity between the two covenants is that Noah and the ark both serve as Types, if you will of Jesus Christ on the cross think about this for a moment God used one man Noah in a wooden boat to rescue Noah his family the animals from his judgment and his wrath it was an act of saving and in some respects redeeming mankind as a whole because he could have wiped out all of mankind but he didn't his his choice was to save mankind preserve humankind through one man Noah and his family what do we see when it comes to the new covenant we see God reach down and use one man Jesus Christ and a wooden cross To save not only mankind, but even creation from eternal judgment. Do you know that? Even creation is saved because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All creation is groaning right now, it says. Waiting for the redemption of, of not just God's sons, but of itself. There's a new heavens and a new earth. And so as we think about how Noah, one man, was able to save through the ark... Mankind and God's creation. In a physical sense, God uses one man in the cross to save not just us, but all of the creation. A third similarity is that both covenants confirm that God is a God who not only desires to save, but provides the means to do so. Remember, with the Noahic covenant, God made the provision. He's the one that provided what was necessary for the building of the ark. He was the one who brought the animals to Noah. He was the one who provided the animals for the sacrifice afterwards. You see, God's provision in all of that. Think about the new covenant. God provided the means there too, didn't he? It was his own son. We're told that we are saved by grace, not by our works. So that we couldn't boast. God can boast. When it came to Noah... Noah went along for the ride. Not that he didn't work. You know, he had to be in obedience. He had to believe God for what God promised. But God provided everything for him. It's the same thing for us. There's nothing that God says we have to do for our own salvation. In fact, he says you can't do anything. I have to provide everything. And I've done that. We're going to be getting into the book of Colossians after this. And in that very first section, Paul talks about faith, hope, and love. And what's really kind of interesting about that is how that kind of correlates to the fact that we didn't have to do anything. God did it all. He provided everything that we might have faith, hope, and love. The last and final similarity, and we'll wrap it up with this, is that both covenants reveal that God's resolve to save is based upon our nature. We've already alluded to this, but... Back in chapter 8 verse 21 We learn that God's resolve To never destroy mankind again Was because of his compassion Over the fact that we are sinful to the core The intent of man's heart Is evil from its youth And so remember As God looked down His resolve to not do that again Was because he looked down And saw our true nature Saw who we are think about this for a moment Romans chapter 5 verse 6 through 11 Romans chapter 5 we're going to see something very similar Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 11 for a while we were still helpless at the right time Christ died for the ungodly For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man some would dare to even die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Did you get what that says there? It says that we were enemies of God. We were sinners. We were deserving of His wrath. But God looked at that and He saw, it says here, that we were helpless. There was not a darn thing we could do. And so because of that, He reached down and did what he could do. Does that sound at all like what we just discovered with Noah? God looks down and he says, their heart is wicked. There's nothing they can do. So in my love, in my forbearance, I'm going to withhold my wrath. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to endure. And what Peter tells us again was in the hopes that they might come to repentance. They might accept what I can do. And so we get this interesting parallel between what we see in Noah's day with God saying, your heart is wicked and because of that you are helpless. And so I will act. And that's exactly what we see in the cross in the gospel is God looked at us and said, you are helpless. So when we were sinners, while we were enemies of his, God reached down in his divine mercy, his divine forbearance, his divine grace and offered us a way of salvation. Amen? So we see how the gospel continues to be revealed through each one of these events. And again, I think this is probably one of the starkest because of the parallels. I I love when you go down to the ark encounter and you go to the big doorway, the door on the side of the ark, and they've got superimposed on that, the cross of Jesus Christ, correlating those two, because they get it down there. They know that... Everything points us to Christ in the Old Testament, including the Ark. Amen?